Welcome back to Emerging Environments. Today on the podcast, we're closing out Season 2 with a conversation with Dr. Eliane Ubalajoro. Eliane is the Executive Director of Sustainability in the Digital Age, the Global Hub Director for Future Earth in Canada, and a Professor of Practice for Public-Private Sector Partnerships at McGill University's Institute for the Study of International Development. Eliane has decades of experience spanning academia and working at the science policy interface in both the nonprofit and international development sectors. In our conversation with Eliane, she reflected on how growing up in Rwanda has shaped her unique perspective and how her career has shifted from science to policy and the role that institutions and leadership play in driving societal change. Her current focus is on leveraging the digital age to accelerate sustainable and equitable change, while also recognizing and anticipating the challenges. We spoke about how training in sustainability and digital competencies needs to be prioritized and better integrated into core educational experiences. We had a thought-provoking and wide-ranging conversation with Eliane. We hope you enjoy this final episode of the second season of Emerging Environments. Okay. Hi, Eliane. Thanks so much for joining us today on the podcast. Pleasure. Great being here. So before we ask you about your leadership at Future Earth Canada and sustainability in the digital age, we'd love to first hear about how you got to where you are now. So can you tell us where you grew up and a little bit about your story? And were you always interested in in the connections between equity and environmental issues? Yes, sure. So I, I was born in Rwanda in 1972. I'm 50 years old, so I've been around for a bit. Um, and my, my journey brought me to Canada in um, 1989 to do an undergraduate degree in agriculture. And during my undergraduate degree, the Civil War started and uh, in Rwanda. And so uh, I went home during the Civil War. It was really rough. And I realized that I needed to reorient my career, that I wasn't going to be able to go home and work with farmers peacefully the way I had planned. And so um, I uh, went on to do a master's and a PhD in molecular genetics and was a scientific director in the biotechnology industry for a number of years. And um, after my daughter was born, I'd been a scientific director for about five years, I went back home and I hadn't been home for 14 years. And I realized that everything I'd learned working at the interface of innovation in the biotech world had applications to what I had always wanted to do at the interface of food security in Africa, because it was all about how do you put in place and grow innovation ecosystems. But I also made me realize that in developing world contexts, it was really important to create the innovation ecosystems. It wasn't just about growing them. You really had to vision them. You had to bring very different players together and that's when I would say my, my leadership journey really began because creating new systems is about visioning and visioning really requires um, dreaming up things and leadership as opposed to management is about creating systems that don't exist so they can be managed. Mm-hmm. And so I would say that has been my journey. My, my interest in equity has always been there because 
growing up, I, I always knew I was privileged and lucky because I, I was able to go to school. I, I was always, you know, had shelter, loving parents. But I also realized that there were opportunities to contribute so others could have the same. And so that was the initial reason I went to study agriculture. And I would say today, uh, a lot of the work I've done since has really been around creating those partnerships to grow innovation ecosystems in the mm -hmm. developing world. And the work I've been doing in Canada has been a lot around connecting with Indigenous communities and understanding their needs. And so I'm always interested in how do we look at what's happening at the margins of society and wherever I am, whatever I'm doing, and how do we make the world a more compassionate, equitable space for everybody to contribute? Amazing. And um, so you're you're also a professor of practice at McGill University. Can you tell us a little bit about that that position and and how you engage with with students on some of these ideas? So okay, so there's COVID. There's there's my life pre-COVID and you yeah. know now. So, so pre-COVID, I did a lot of teaching and executive programs at McGill. Mm -hmm. And so most of the students I, I, I interacted with were really uh, executives. For example, I, I was um, an advisor in the International Masters in Health Leadership. I taught for many years in the McGill uh, parliamentary uh, program that worked with the Commonwealth. And I also did uh, the same with Université Laval in French where we're working with parliamentarians from the francophonie. And so I would teach the leadership modules. And, and my particular interest was really leadership, science, technology, and policymaking, because I really feel that we're an era where those are defining society and how we lead in those spaces is critical. And for policymakers, it may not necessarily be their place of grounding, but how they approach um, with curiosity in terms of the complexity of the science, but also the critical importance they play in putting in place the enabling policies is very critical. And so I would take them on journeys to imagine and dream and think about those issues of leadership and management. And I would say the work I've been doing um, in the Global South has really taught me a lot around creativity, leadership, and innovation, because I think there's a privileged space being in um, high-income countries where systems are in place. We manage them, we manage them better, we can do better, but they're in place. If you don't do it, you know, somebody else will. And in low- and middle-income contexts, how one person lead can have a phenomenal effect on a lot of people. And so um, I kind of use that as my basis when I'm working with policymakers in terms of how do you take on your role to have as much impact and influence for good? So that's been something that I've been very, very passionate about. And within the International Masters in Health Leadership, I've worked with health leaders, Canadian health leaders, leaders globally. And it's really been about how do you vision the work you do as a medical doctor, but who you are as a leader to have the most influence in, in a very hierarchical, difficult system. And so, and so it's, it's, that's also been really illuminating around the challenges of, of our health systems uh, locally and globally and, and what it requires for somebody who is trained in a medical profession to lead. And so, so I find those very fascinating. 
In terms of the undergraduate programs where I have uh, contributed to, uh, it's a, a lot of it has been at the interface of the sustainability development goals and, and the work that we can all collectively do, how COVID has influenced the urgency to move towards that, but also what are the barriers that we're still facing. But I would say most of my work around being a professor of practice has been research programs. So it's been the joy of, of working with other professors um, so who are tenure track and working on projects that imagine new ways of doing things. So whether it's looking at drug discovery in Africa, harnessing local biodiversity, or working with social scientists around how do we use arts-based methodologies to get the voices of female smallholder farmers heard and amplified and influencing policymakers. So, so my interest is really how do you increase the flow of information from the most powerful to the most abundant in the world? And how do you allow um, ways of communicating that really harness collective intelligence? Yeah, fascinating. You mentioned uh, engagement with Indigenous communities earlier on. Is that um, something you do in Canada and other places as well? Or is, is it a specific uh, project that you're working on there? So, so I do have a specific project in Canada around nature-based solutions and, and how do we uh, engage uh, to accelerate the sustainable development goals in Canada and how do we harness digitalization. And a significant component of this work has been around uh, indigenous knowledge and wisdom and how do we harness um, the guidance that comes from centuries of living in harmony with nature to bring us back to a more regenerative relationship with nature. So, so for me, in because I've worked for so long globally, the work I do in Canada as the hub director for Future Earth has really been around how do we bring the best of the technological age with the best of the ancestors of the lands that I'm on. That's pretty cool, the way that you described it there, kind of bridging <laughs> between almost thinking like, you know, future forward with future Earth and, and then looking at this kind of um, time immemorial <laughs> knowledge, knowledge base. That's so cool. Um, I have a follow up question, actually, about your kind of your training in molecular genetics. And and I guess I'm wondering, you know, people. It seems to me like some people who are involved in thinking about leadership and system design, like institutional system design and that sort of thing, don't necessarily always come from such a, you know, hard science background. And I'm wondering how that how that background has kind of influenced how you look at um, systems development and, and leadership and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So I think it's really interesting because a lot of technical work in the world, in order to get those jobs, all that we require are technical expertise. But at the end of the day, we manage people. And so when I finished my PhD and I was a scientific director in biotechnology, I realized I had never had a single course on how to manage people, how to manage expectations, Uh, how to align people to a vision, how to ensure that people feel heard, understood, but at the same time realize that we have timelines and certain budgets that we need to stay within. I I, I had not prepared for any of these things. So when I would leave work, 
I would voraciously read everything I could around management and leadership because I wanted to be a good leader. I wanted my team to be happy. I wanted them to feel that they were safe, that they could take mm-hmm. needed risks to achieve what we needed to do in our work. But I also realized that these were things I had not been trained in at all. And so I would say my journey around leadership really started at that interface. And at the same time, being from Rwanda and having seen what had happened in 1994 in terms of the genocide against the Tutsis made me realize that the power of leadership, that if you could have building of the genocidal ideology to get to a point where within 100 days, you could kill close to a million people. I thought leadership for good or for evil were very critical. And so I had been reflecting on the power of leadership for a long time, but never really thinking of myself as a leader. Mm. But when I became a scientific director, I realized that in my own little world, I created an environment where people were either happy to come to work every day or were not. And mm-hmm. so what I realized is that we all have responsibilities in terms of what are the environments we're creating? How safe do people feel to thrive, to work hard, to want to show up? And I remember also as a scientist uh, looking at the number of days lost per year due to mental health issues. And I remember when I was working in infectious disease, I was really humbled because I realized that half the days lost related to work globally were related to mental health issues. And, and you know, the hard problems of science that were I was looking at in terms of infectious diseases didn't represent a lot of the days lost due to work. And so as much as when we have Ebola or, you know, viruses like, you know, we face the pandemic is at the end of the day, the mental health, mental health is a critical component of life. And so what I realized is that I needed to think about my mental health. I needed to think about the mental health of my teams. And and I think on a global basis, if we think about humanity, it's what is the mental health we bring to our relationship to nature. So, So for me, the macro and the micro have always influenced each other and have always guided me. And and what's been very interesting is the infinitesimal small in terms of the molecular has been my journey into exploring science. But the reality of my life has been really exploded by the history of my homeland. And so the contrast between what I lived in terms of the laboratory and just the journey of discovery and the reality of being a human being trying to navigate and 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 live ha- have been you know two forces and and what's been interesting is that when i was finishing my phd was also at the time where the human genome was sequenced the first human genome and and that was also the the encounter of biology and digitalization and so mm-hmm. for me it's been interesting to look at how my own life my the research i've been doing and how we're evolving as humanity have all interlinked to the digital age we're in. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, such a unique, (laughs) 
unique story that you have there. And, and, um, and so now, in addition to being kind of the global hub director of Future Earth, you're also the executive director of sustainability in the digital age. And so a lot of what you're focused on now is about how data and digitalization <laughs> can be leveraged to drive transformative change. Um, so I'm wondering, first, if you can just describe what is meant by the digital age. So if you, if you think about it, so, you know, we, we've gone through the pandemic where many of us who were lucky were able to continue work from home. So if you think about telecommunications and how the telecommunications level that we've reached allowed so many people to continue to work without leaving their homes and how today 90% of employment requires being able to go online to find jobs, to apply for jobs. So mm -hmm. the digital age is really this reality that being connected digitally today is a basic right that all should have access to. We were not yet at a place where all do have access to it, but the digital age speaks to the power of what the digital represents today. Today, we have 13 companies that make more annually than over like 80 countries in the world. Mm -hmm. So that's also the power of the digital age. And so those distortions that come from that power that's linked to data, to information, and to insights that comes from this space is a reflective of this age on the power that is linked to data and being able to um, get insights out of data to produce profit and to have power to influence what happens in the world. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so with respect to sustainability and kind of the focus of, of um, your work as executive director, can you talk a little bit about how digitalization is transforming sustainability science and other types of sustainability research? Yes. So if, if you think about um, the sustainable development goals, we have 17 sustainable development goals and they each have particular indicators. And, you know, the intent is for countries to use those indicators to move towards progress so we can achieve a certain minimum standards by 2030 for all countries in the world. So in order to monitor that progress, we need to look at data. And so digitalization, what digitalization allows us is to automate and to transparently uh, gather this data for use in the long term. And so digitalization is very critical to accessing, monitoring, and uh, figuring out where is the data taking us? What can we do to move towards where we want faster and more effectively? And so the access to data today is very critical to decision making. And so in terms of sustainability, uh, you know, we know that we have transgressed several planetary boundaries and, you know, we've had these heat waves, we've had fires, we continuously have floods happening around the world. And so how we look at how climate is um, affecting us, how we look at those data points and we work with those data points to bring about the needed transformation requires that we harness digitalization in the most positive way. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm just thinking about kind of my own work as a climate scientist. And when I was the PhD student, it was kind of just at the time when, you know, climate model output started to be publicly available and we could share it among institutions and people, you know, like students like myself could look at this data. And now, you know, we kind of just take for granted that this data is available and maybe not accessible (laughs) or as accessible as we would like, but it's, yeah, it's really kind of exploded in the last, you know, decade or so. Mm -hmm. Um, And, um, but you mentioned like earlier that, you know, this is not something you know, digitalization is not something that everyone is benefiting from at the moment. Um, and so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about some of the barriers that remain kind of globally and also in Canada. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I talked earlier about the Human Genome Project. So the first human genome cost $3.2 billion to produce. Okay. So today you can get your genome, you know, sequence for about a thousand dollars or less. And so part of it is the more data we have, the more democratization we have in terms of access to information. However, um, you know, the acceleration of that democratization is not as fast as we'd like it to be. And so we know, for example, in Canada that, you know, poor communities have less access to digitalization. We know that Indigenous communities, as we go, you know, far north, also have less access. So, you know, that last mile connectivity for remote communities is always an issue. There are a number of projects in Canada happening to uh, ensure that that doesn't affect, um, you know, that we accelerate access to digitalization for um, others. And so it's very important that we um, continue to do this work in ways that, um, sorry, that ensure that all citizens, especially in Canada, have access to um, connectivity. And so in terms of equity and digitalization, you know, digitalization today should be a basic right. And in that sense, understanding who are the people who aren't connected and why they're not connected and what we can do to make that accessibility possible is very critical because as long as we have parts of the populations that are not connected, they're not able to contribute economically in ways you know, others are able to. And so um, I would say, you know, that's a critical element around the world. It's a critical element in Canada in terms of the segments I've talked about. And um, in developing world, it's also a, a gendered issue where women in general have less access than men. And so how we um, bridge that divide is a really critical element of the work that needs to happen in order to ensure that all um, are, are, are able to contribute to this digital age. And just kind of a final sort of question about kind of this this landscape of of the digital age and sustainability. Um, We like digitalization does not necessarily imply big data. It could be, you know, small little data sets and that sort of thing, but obviously big data is a big part of how things are moving forward. And I was wondering if you could um, reflect a little bit on some of the opportunities and maybe challenges that you see associated with big data and machine learning for, uh, for sustainability science. Okay, so one of the things that I think is really critical today is who has access to the big data. 
how mm-hmm. inclusive is that access? Because depending on how inclusive it is, you know, we'll, we'll either have 30 year old white males in Silicon Valley deciding what's happening everywhere in the world, or we'll have inclusive innovation systems that bring machine learning to indigenous women in Peru and South Africa and New Zealand and Australia. And we really have uh, all voices contributing to this digital age. And so um, I, we're at a really critical time. Um, we know that, you know, computer science numbers in terms of gender, you know, in high income countries have gone down by like 50% in the last 40 years or something. And so we know that because this is a space that uh, has high earning power, uh, there's been more and more men applying <laughs> to this space. And um creating the systems for women to feel safe, to thrive in the digital age, to thrive in computer science it is an issue that we need to address and that we need to bring down barriers for women in the spaces of big data, artificial intelligence, robotics, and that's from a very young age. And so how we create a level playing field is very critical to how inclusive the innovations we're going to be producing are going to be and how they're going to be able to address localized issues. So we we need to ensure access to these learnings to women all over, and girls all over the world to ensure that we're we're having perspectives that aren't only just you know building the best uh, computer games for fun, but are really saying how do we harness these issues for you know access to water around the world for um, producing food in ways that um, decrease greenhouse gas emissions from agriculture? How do we decrease waste around the world in terms of one third of the food being produced is wasted while one third of the global population also lives in food insecurity? So how do we harness data? How do we harness machine learning to create systems that are more um, caring, that, that ensure that all are able to have the minimum uh, to to, to thrive and, and to contribute effectively to society. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. And I, you know, I did a short stint in kind of the data science world. And as a woman, I, you know, I have a PhD, I'm, you know, well-educated, but it was kind of an intimidating environment and, you know, and that that's in North America, <laughs> right? So I can see that there are many barriers uh, that still need to be kind of overcome, um, for sure. Um, I'm going to pass it back over to Stu. Mm -hmm. So Eliane, can you tell us a little bit about Canada and how Canada is performing with respect to digitalization and, you know, creating the conditions that can be supportive for transformative change? Is Canada, you know, creating those conditions right now? So in terms of the digitalization agenda, it's very central to uh, Canada's policymaking and to the, the mandate letters that the prime minister has given to all the ministries. So, so it, it is a very critical uh, priority in Canada. How we go from um, having that be a mandate in place to actually contributing to building prosperity is another thing because it's about education, it's about literacy, it's about creativity and innovation, it's about uh, turning creativity into actual products that help build prosperity. So we know that in Canada, in terms of the education system, we're very strong, but we also know that there are still a lot of issues around how do we take uh, the, the collective intelligence 
to really build that prosperity. We know we have issues around, I think about half the STEM graduates in Canada uh, moving mostly to the U.S. And so we need to create more opportunities in Canada um, in science, technology, engineering, mathematics in general. And we need to create more opportunities at that interface of digitalization and sustainability for Canada to be a major player, not only for itself, but for the planet in terms of how we harness both sustainability and digitalization to produce greener, more regenerative economies globally. Yeah, yeah. One one example that comes to mind when you're talking about this is the Indigenous Guardians program in Canada. Are you, are you familiar with that program? Yes. Yeah. Yes. So they 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 seem to be you know there there are sort of uh, I guess financial systems that are supporting that program and very much are seem to be aligned with that idea of creating that digital infrastructure um, where a lot of these communities are you know developing their own ecological monitoring programs, mm-hmm. have that data available, and they're actually also mm-hmm. promoting you know, on social media as well. So it's it's yeah. one of these things that really seems to be uh, driving that agenda forward, yeah. Mm-hmm. And this is where I think Canada can play a really powerful role at that interface of harnessing Indigenous wisdom and the technological age, because we, you know, w- we have this legacy of, of tens of thousands of years of Indigenous wisdom and how we bring both together in accelerating literacy and in accelerating solution making that is locally driven is very critical. And, and and so this is where I would like to see Canada keep expanding and growing. Absolutely. So sustainability in the digital age and future earth are part of the Coalition for Digital Environmental Sustainability, which has recently developed an action plan. Can you tell us a little bit about the priorities and challenges outlined in that plan? Yes, yes. So so the, the Coalition for Digital Environmental Sustainability is a program that uh, we're working on with the United Nations Technology Invoice Office, the United Nations Development uh, Program, the United Nations Environmental Program, the German Environment Agency, the Kenyan Ministry of Environment, as well as the International Science Council. And so what we see, and, and this has been after a year of consultation of over a thousand people around the world, is we see three critical shifts that are are really important. And so the first one is is how do we enable alignment in terms of how do we align the the vision and the values in order to move where we want to go? And the second one is really around sustainable digitalization. We know that digitalization itself has uh, a, a greenhouse gas imprint that is accelerating as we accelerate the use of digitalization. So how do we mitigate for that? And the third shift around um, digitalization for sustainability and how do we accelerate innovations at that interface? And so what we see, we see for in the first shift in terms of enabling alignment, we see the the importance of of really that idea of vision and values being aligned. And, you know, in terms of the second shift, it's, it's this idea of how do we mitigate negative impacts? And this is a really critical one. And the third one is really this idea of how do we accelerate the innovations that are going to really ensure that digitalization for sustainability will allow us to get where we need to get by 2030 while keeping um, the temperature of the planet within two degrees. Yeah. So so maybe in that third kind of bullet point is the idea of developing 
digital competencies, I think innovative competencies. Um, you know, how do you see, I guess, across Canada or more broadly, uh, you know, training in, in the digital sphere? Is it currently up to the task uh, from your perspective of developing these competencies? Uh, are there certain specialized skills that you see as emergent that will need to sort of accelerate in the educational sphere? So I, I think we need to accelerate. <laughs> There's so many things we need to do. And so, so part of it is, you know, like the, the three of us are talking as people in the know. And, and the reality is there, there's basic knowledge that the three of us hold that every single citizen on the planet needs to hold. Okay, so um, last year we, we, we had a, a program that was funded by um, Economic and Social Development Canada around the Sustainable Development Goals and Digitalization. And I remember when we were working on that project, what I found out was only a fourth of Canadians knew what the Sustainable Development Goals are. Mm. Okay, And we're still in a situation where not all Canadians believe in climate change. And so th there's a there's basic literacy that we need to put in place around sustainability, around climate that every single citizen needs to have in order to really um, ensure that their democratic power uh, is exercised for their own good. And unless we have that basic literacy, we're not going to get where we need to get as fast as we should, because, you know, like we saw over the summer in terms of climate policy in the U.S., how people have voted and who they put in place is very critical to passing climate funding. And so citizens have a responsibility and governments and education system have a responsibility to ensure that everybody has some basic understanding. And in this digital age, we also know that we live in an age of misinformation where seven to nine out of the information we have on the web is not uh, based on, on science and is not uh, trustworthy. And so how we navigate that is one basic space. How do we incorporate education on sustainable development goals, uh, climate literacy, you know, from as young as possible? So those are critical things. How do we harness the arts to get, uh, you know, young people, you know, from uh, kindergarten aware of their relationship to nature, aware of our, our responsibility in terms of living in harmony um, with uh, other species on the planet. And so I think there's some basic literacy around just uh, citizen responsibility and accountability. And then there's all the education that we need in terms of accelerating the work. And mm -hmm. accelerating the work is really uh, having a profound understanding of the issues. Uh, I mean, we're very lucky to have IPCC reports regularly that really give us um, a good idea of the situations we're in. However, how we translate that into policies and into financial systems that are rewarding economies that are going to decrease greenhouse gas emissions isn't where we need to be right now. So the sense of urgency around how we achieve those goals in terms of financial incentives, in terms of regulatory and policy environments, there's a lot we still need to do. And so, so those are really critical uh, not only on, on, on the side of regulation and policy, but on the side of how are we accelerating innovations that allow us to have greener economies? How can we stop rewarding fossil fuel economies because we're still rewarding fossil fuel economies? And so the transition, the just transition that we need is going to require rethinking of our systems and, and really requires the support of citizens so that we can transform the 
policy and regulatory environments to incentivize finance, regulation, education to accelerate literacy and uh, support for digitalization for sustainability and achieving the sustainable development goals by 2030 and hopefully net zero by 2050. Yeah, yeah. And in terms of um, collaboration between, you know, the public and private sector, can you speak to that a little bit in terms of, you know, the importance or lack thereof of that relationship mm -hmm. in sort mm -hmm. of ac accelerating these competencies and, and this transformative yes. change that we're, yes, we're looking yes, towards? Yes. So, so the first thing I think about is Brad Smith, the president of Microsoft's book on tools and weapons and, and how very candidly in his book, he talks about the power that uh, the private sector in terms of the digital space have taken in the world and the need for regulation. And so this is somebody from the private sector saying, please regulate us. Mm -hmm. uh, we've seen it in, in BlackRock's annual letters where they're like, governments, we need you guys to regulate us. And so, because one of the things is there's a difference between voluntarily saying we're going to do the work to have economies that are greener, that are more fair, and that um, are more accessible to all. And then there's the com competition that comes in terms of, are you producing profit or are you producing social good? And how is that gonna determine your stock price, et cetera? So there's a need to align how our systems work so that we're not only looking at profit, but we're looking at social capital we're building, we're looking at human capital and natural capital. So I think we're in a very exciting time with the International Sustainability Standards Board, you know, being set up in Montreal where I am. It's really this idea of how do we transform our accounting systems and how do we look at stakeholder capitalism in terms of how do all players benefit from the economic systems we're putting in place and how do we bring about policy frameworks that really allow that flow of information from the most powerful to the least powerful, but the most numerous around the planet. And so these systems are really going to require a redistribution of power and a better flow of information and agility that's based on data-driven decision-making that can really allow the level of transparency needed for citizens to know, is this working for us or not? Is this working for our future generations? You know, And I, I, I love the indigenous ways of, of knowing in terms of governing, of saying, are we governing for seven generations from now? And so this is where data becomes critical because it shows us how well or not we're doing. And, and so how we harness those is very critical. And it's that that interface of public-private partnerships. And so it's really important that we have literacy on both sides so that the work can be done in ways that really allow all to contribute um, in an equitable way. Because sometimes, you know, private sector may have just more uh, freedom to, to acquire more knowledge. And this is where... How do we create a global commons that ensures a level playing field for you know, all governments, no matter what sizes, have the basic needed information so that their decision-making allows us to move in the directions we want? But how do we also create regulatory systems that ensure that businesses are not only looking at profit, but are looking at how is what they're doing affecting the water quality? How is it affecting the biodiversity around the work? How is it affecting the, the quality of life of the communities around their, you know, the work? And so 
how we can look at you know these new types of accounting systems that are are based on you know looking at the four capitals instead of just profit making i think will transform public private partnerships mm -hmm. and from from your perspective are there certain types of private sector companies or organizations that are you know seemingly more well aligned with that those types of objectives well i think it's very interesting because i, I think you could be in any sector but it's really how purpose driven and how values driven the company leadership is and mm -hmm. so you could be in tech or producing yogurt but it really comes down to what is the ethos you're bringing to the work you're doing and how are you doing looking at your contributions beyond making money in terms of the legacy you are leaving behind for society and for nature and mm -hmm. i think so those are parameters and and so I find that you know there's a lot of talk around regenerative economies around the world, and and you know that mindset can happen in any sector. What we need to do is have it happen in all sectors by all players. And so, mm -hmm. you know, that's where I I'm passionate about the work I do with governments, with multilateral institutions. It's because we can collectively work at creating that framework and ensuring that small, medium you know, businesses have the same opportunities as large corporations to be able to contribute to uh, sustainable solutions in the long term. Yeah, yeah. I'll pass it back to Karen. Sure, yeah. Actually, that just kind of made me think of um, when I was an undergrad in engineering, um, I was involved in like a conference on you know, sustainability in the in engineering space. And, uh, and there was a company that was really kind of promoting their drive for efficiency and trying to save energy and, and water usage and all this stuff. And it was a flooring company, you know, it wasn't some big, you know, multinational company. It was just a local company near where my university was located who developed flooring. And, but the, um, the president of the company was just really focused on the environment and that was kind of where he was coming from and then you know the the benefit was that they actually also saved some money <laughs> by by driving these efficiencies in their production and things like that so um so yeah it, it can be kind of across the board as you said um, um i guess i just have one kind of final question sort of from my own perspective about from a teaching perspective thinking about the training and and you talked about kind of just general literacy with respect to sustainability and what does that look like? Um, but then there's the data side too. And I know a lot of students, when they think here data, they think math, they think coding, then they're like, no, thank you. I don't want to do that. Um, but I guess I always think like, if you're looking at an IPCC report, there's all these graphs and you wanna be able to kind of at least understand what the graphs are showing. So how do you kind of navigate that <laughs> that fear that students have of, of mathematics or not just students, adults, like everybody. Yeah, yeah. everybody. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, so, so, you know, one of the things that I find really, really important, you know, because I spend a lot of time with policymakers is you have to make things as simple as possible without taking away from it. And so I love visual representations. That, that's something I love because I find that, that they're very helpful. I love storytelling. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, because you have quantitative and qualitative data, 
you can tell a story through data. You know, there's like a beautiful movie called Kiss the Ground that, you know, basically through story tells you the story of how a third of the soils around the world are degrading and how regenerative agriculture can change that. And so, you know, data itself for the data geeks is great, but we also need storytellers that work with data to, to change it and move it forward. We need artists to take data and make it interesting for people. And so I really see a, a critical importance of how do we translate data to make it interesting for every single person on the planet. Mm -hmm. And this is where literacy is about how do we use all the forms of intelligence? Because not everybody will, you know, absorb things the same way. Is how do we how do we look at you know tactile intelligence? How do we look at you know how um, uh, you know virtual reality is immersing people in worlds that, that allow them to 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 live the data? And so mm. I am all for an, a total immersive, so, you know, um, perspective around education to ensure that we leave nobody behind. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's a challenge, but also an opportunity to yes. kind of explore different ways to communicate yes. for sure. Um, so we just have a little bit of time left with you. And I wanted to kind of shift directions a little bit towards your role as the, the Global Hub Director for Future Earth. And maybe you could tell us a little bit about this, this Future Earth Network and, and kind of what it involves and what your role um, entails. Okay. So Future Earth is a network of probably over tens of thousands of sustainability scientists around the world. Uh, we have a number of global hubs. So, so I had the hub in Canada. There's a hub in the United States. There's a hub in France. There's a hub in Sweden and Japan and Taiwan and China um, in India. There's one in South Africa. And then we have researchers all over the world that are affiliated with global research programs that look at different aspects of sustainability. And so the intent really of, of um, Future Earth is to harness the intelligence of sustainability scientists around the world to help us accelerate the work we need to do to get where we need to get by 2030. And um, in that context, our Canadian hub, like I said, you know, we, we've done work around the sustainable development goals and digitalization. We do work around nature-based solutions, indigenous knowledge, and how do we integrate that with machine learning and artificial intelligence. And we're also doing work at the interface of high-resolution satellite data and regenerative agricultural systems, and how do we help nudge the uh, change from um, agricultural systems that produce a third of the greenhouse gas emissions in the world to one that becomes nature positive and does not um, contribute to greenhouse gas emissions. And so for me, part of it is the data. The satellite data is great because it's visual data again. You know, how do we tap into those different forms of intelligence uh, to nudge people around the changes that we need to do. And so the work we do is also around reimagining climate governance in the digital age. So we think a lot about the power shifts that are needed to bring about the needed partnerships, the needed trust building uh, to uh, fail forward in terms of how do we innovate and accelerate the changes we do in ways that people feel safe to take risks, to be creative, and to work with people from very different disciplines. So there's a vulnerability because you're coming in knowing your area of research, but not understanding somebody else's. So how do you make it safe? 
for people with very different knowledge systems to work together and innovate together towards a global future that benefits all. So I would say that's the work of Future Earth. Mm-hmm. And so how how do you facilitate these collaborations um, across like different disciplines and that sort of thing? Like what can you give us an example of the type of you know events or things like that that, that you do? Yeah. So, for example, for the reimagining climate governance in the digital age, you know, we, um, we 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 held workshops where we brought people from all over the world. So, so we had uh, workshops on Asia time, on European and African time, on Latin American time to make sure, you know. So sometimes I'd wake up four in the morning. Sometimes I'd wake <laughs> up really late. But you know, how do you ensure that you're getting all a diversity of voices contributing to the work? And so part of it for us was, you know, being able to consult with experts from around the world. We've also done uh, workshops with, you know, some of the most powerful philanthropies in climate to understand what are their priorities, what do they see as gaps, and what are we finding in terms of data from um, experts, and how do we align the work of philanthropy to help de-risk the larger financial ecosystem. Uh, you know, we, we've done held workshops with indigenous knowledge holders to get a better understanding of where they see the work they have done. How do we balance the need for, you know, sacred principles that need to be held within the community and the knowledge that everybody can use to contribute to, uh, a, you know, living within planetary boundaries in a more healthy way? You know, we convene people to think forward together in terms of how do we connect the people who get it so we can accelerate the work of innovators for good for climate? And how do we do it in a way that we will get to a tipping point where there will be no naysayers because the work is speaking for itself? Mm-hmm. Wow, that sounds really um, inspiring. <laughs> and I think maybe I'm going to join up and join the network and. <laughs> and- and participate in some of the next workshops. It sounds really cool. Well, thanks so much for uh, joining us today. It was really interesting to hear all about the work that you're doing and uh, it's really exciting. Thank you. Thanks so much, Elian. Thank you.